Hi, it's Andy here. A quick couple of things before we start. You're about to hear an interview with author Desdemore about his new book, which is called Cask Beer, The Real Story of Britain's Unique Beer Culture. And it's out today, August the 1st. Plus, I recorded this interview while I was away on holiday in Cornwall and we had a few technical issues, so it doesn't sound absolutely perfect. You can hear a few glitches along the way, but still a fantastically interesting interview with a brilliant guest. So let's hear it. On with the episode. Welcome to another episode of Nantbauer Brews. My name is Andy. I'm a home brewer and beer lover based in Cardiff in beautiful sunny Wales. Although actually for this episode, I'm based in rainy Cornwall. Still a brilliant place for beer in the UK, as I'm sure today's guest will tell me in more detail. Today's guest is a very special one. He is an expert in so many things, particularly beer, but also music and also hiking and walking around this wonderful country of ours and many other countries too. But the reason I've got him on is to talk about a new book that he's written all about cask beer. And that is something that I'm very passionate about, but I know I don't know enough about. And I think that today's guest is going to tell us a lot more. So it's Des Demore. Des, welcome and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for asking me. So let's start with the book. Why did you feel that this book needed to be written? Because that nobody had done it before, really. I think cask beer is it's an interesting thing that, you know, cask beer has been such a focus of beer campaigning in this country for many, many, many years. It was obviously around cask beer that the, you know, the first kind of beer campaigning coalesced in the 60s, even before camera. And then in the 70s with camera, the campaign for real ale and so on. It, you know, it was enormously important, a really kind of sort of pivotal moment in the way that today's awareness of beer developed. It just seems to have been taken for granted. There are lots and lots of books that will tell you where to find good cast beer. There's obviously the Good Beer Guide published every year and so on with, a, you know, lots and lots of recommended cast pubs. But nobody's really gone into the details of it. And I think it's one of those things as well that, it creates this environment where a lot of myths develop about it. And particularly if you go back to the early days um, when, you know, first of all, the Society for the Protection of Beers from the Wood was founded in the 1960s. They were really the first kind of, uh, you know, beer campaigning organisation as we'd, we'd recognise them today. And then later on, camera in the, the early 70s. You know, at the time those organisations started, the level of knowledge about beer was so much lower. I say in the book that you can find out, you know, practically anything about beer with a, with a quick Google, you know, but that just simply wasn't the case back then. The people who, who, who knew the technical side of beer were brewers. And actually, I think it has to be said that some of them <laughs> didn't know it terribly well. They basically kind of picked it up from their predecessors. And it was something that was taught by example, as it had been for, you know, many, many thousands of years. That gave the opportunity then for a lot of a lot of myths to develop and people kind of happening on certain sort of facts and thinking they were big. A great example is actually the Society for the Prevention of Beer, you know, some prevention, I do beg your pardon, protection, <laughs> <laughs> beers from the wood. When they were set up in the early 60s, to them what the problem seemed to be, because this, this was at a time, so two things were happening at this time. First of all, you know, there was, this was really the, you know, the period where the big brewing groups that had emerged through that 
you know, whole series of mergers that happened in this country uh, in the post-war period were trying to phase out cask for all kinds of actually quite understandable reasons. This also coincided with a time when the vessels in which beers were distributed were changing. So people were moving over from cask beer being sent out in wooden casks to it being sent out in, in metal casks, steel, and they toyed with aluminium for a while before settling on steel. Of course, the evidence for this was pretty obvious because you could walk into any pub yard and there you could see it if you were used to seeing like wooden cars stacked up now you were seeing all these steel cars stacked up instead so it's quite understandable that when the member the people who founded the the spbw or spew as it's rather uh, <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> pronounced as an acronym in the beer world um when they uh realized something was going wrong with their beer from the taste and they weren't enjoying it as much as they had been previously and there was this awareness that there was a you know beer was becoming less characterful and less flavorful you know to them it, the association seemed to be that correlation with the move to steel casks so that was what they focused on. And that's a kind of classic example of like, you know, sort of seizing on what seems to be the most obvious thing that's going on without really a deeper understanding. And I think something similar really happened at the foundation of camera. You know, I think we could have conversations about, you know, the impact of camera for better or worse. And I try, obviously the book is published by camera books. So, you know, I try and give a sort of rounded understanding in the book, but I don't think camera is necessarily beyond criticism, but you can kind of understand the things that they happened on and I think at the time again in the 70s it was this thing about the you know they really focused on the dispense the modern keg beers were pressurized dispense and the cast beers were not and then there was this kind of awareness developed that the cast beers were still fermenting in the cask whereas in those days you know most of the keg beers that were coming in were you know what we call brewery conditioned beers they were some of them were pasteurized all of them were kind of filtered a lot of them were forced carbonated they were fixed in the brewery as far as possible rob and cast beers that continued to develop and condition in the pub cellar so that was really what people focused on. I'm very, very glad they did, because I think there's something really, really important about beers that are conditioned in a pub cellar and are served under natural pressure where you can vent some of the carbon dioxide. But I think there was also a misunderstanding that there was something inherently bad about pressurized beer and brewery conditioned beer which at the time you know was was understandable because the keg beers that the big brewery groups were introducing were not terribly good and they were foisting them on an unwilling public through their control of the tide house system so it's totally understandable how that came about but it did cause a problem further down the line as people certain people began to discover that actually it was possible to do very good and characterful beers in a keg as well so cask wasn't the end of the story in terms of, of the way that we could do beers and certainly that you know that's something that's been a point of friction to some extent over the past kind of 10 or 15 years and what for for better or worse we've come to call the craft beer scene <laughs> so basically it was kind of like looking at all that and looking at all those myths and thinking actually i kind of like to really dig into this and try to find out you know what really happened you know what are the really important things about cask what really sets it apart from other beers what really makes it special but also how it evolved because i'd also realized a few years back that there was you know a lot of misunderstanding about the history of it as well so you will regularly see for example people say well we've been drinking cask beer since medieval times well we haven't cask beer if you look at it and the way it evolved like so many other things in the brewing world really 
it was a product of the 19th century and all the big kind of changes of technology and industrial organization and all the kind of, you know, the major improvements in the understanding of the fermentation process and all those kinds of things that developed, you know, during that period. So I, I really, one of the things I try, I'm trying to get across in the book from that historical perspective is that cask is actually, you know, quite a modern product in some ways. You know, that's the other sort of slight tension I think there is. There's always this, you know, temptation to present it as something that's very traditional that kind of goes back to a, a wonderful world of old England and so on. You know, you quite often see that kind of imagery being used in connection with cask. And I don't, you know, I think it can be misleading and I think it kind of can also do it a disservice to a certain extent because it, you know, you you open it up to the possibility of people saying, well, if it's, you know, basically all this old fashioned stuff to do with the past, why are we bothering with it now? Because times have moved on. So, you know, it was really like trying to address all those kinds of things that, that spurred the creation of the book. Sorry, that's been a very long answer, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I've been thinking about this for quite a while. So, yeah. It's the beauty of podcasting, Des, is that, you know, we've got room for the full answer and your answer yeah. demonstrates just how a rich and varied a subject this is and you know yeah. hearing you talk about all the various myths and, and there are bits where I can uh, see myself fitting into the story in a very light level so I guess camera is kind of how I first got introduced to you know real ale whatever that is and I definitely when you were talking about the 70s and the the big breweries kind of all merging or buying each other out and then these super breweries and then bringing in the kegs immediately alarm bells were going off in my head oh kegs kegs are bad kegs bad cask good and then it's funny now that I've been home brewing for a few years and I understand myself the incredible beers that I can make and serve through kegs almost arguing myself, well, go, hang on, kegs aren't bad. But I think that you're right, that cask almost has kind of got left behind in this kind of craft beer explosion, which is a real shame because I think as I've read you say, and I'm sure this is in the book, that, you know, if you can go and get the kind of pretty much perfect cask experience of something that's been very well brewed and then very well looked after, served in the right way, there really is nothing like it. There is something definitely different about that experience so just to get and i want to get a bit more into that and i definitely want to talk about you know the cellaring the keeping and the serving just to go back a, a step because even even i now as a home brewer and someone who's drunk lots of beer and loves beer i still struggle to define cask beer so is that something you could do for us what is cask beer what counts as cask beer there's several things one is that it needs to still be some kind of active fermentation in the cask. Now that can happen with keg too, that can happen with bottles and cans, so that's not exclusive to cask, but it's still one important thing because it means that the the beer is evolving carbon dioxide. So, I mean, there again, this is one of the things that's parked this off. Uh, I'll mention that because of, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of come up. Um, I had a, you know, really sparked it off was I, I was doing a signing for a previous book and I spoke to uh, a kind of long standing camera member who got extremely agitated when I suggested that there was carbon dioxide in cast beer. It's kind of that sort of level of misunderstanding, you know, that the of course there's carbon dioxide in cast beer. Carbon dioxide is is a natural byproduct, 
as you all know, as a home brewer of the fermentation process. The fermentation process, you know, involves yeast, breaking down sugar, the two byproducts, one uh, carbon dioxide and the other alcohol. You know, that's absolutely fundamental to the production of beer and all other alcoholic drinks. So, of course, there's, you know, the carbon dioxide in, in, in cask. The difference is that it's between, say, a, a what we call a forced carbonated beer or a forced carb beer, where it's been added as a part of the process, is that cask, you know, as do beers that are fermented in kegs and bottles and cans, is evolving its own carbon dioxide. And that's that was actually, you know, that's what brewers mean by conditioning when you talk about conditioning. It's a little bit of an ambiguous term, but often can, the word condition in brewing means the, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the beer. So it's evolving its own CO2. But the big difference is that the way the cask works is that you can vent some of that CO2. Okay, casks kind of follow a traditional design. The design evolved, and I explain this in the book as well, from the days of wooden casks, which goes back, you know, a good kind of 2000 years. So wooden casks are made from individual staves. They use the same principle as the architectural arch where those those staves are kind of bent together. So they lock together. So you get this very, very robust and sturdy and waterproof container. But that naturally gives this kind of bulging shape to the cask and they've got two holes so they've got one hole called the keystone on the head which is where the beer is dispensed from and another hole at right angles to it on the belly of the cask the bilge as it's called called uh, the shive and those two holes are actually you know quite important when casks went over to steel and later on to plastic they still imitated that same basic shape and that same basic kind of anatomy and layer because it works very well for the way that cask beer is cellared and served. So in a traditional pub cellar, the cask is stored on its side in a cradle called a stillage. So you've got the, the keystone down at the sort of, you know, the bottom at the front where you can actually extract the beer from there. But you've also got this shibe, this bigger hole at the top, kind of facing towards the ceiling. And that's got a little hole in it uh, where you can knock a peg called a spile. And that will vent some of the natural CO2. So if you're a skilled cellar person, you will be able to control the level of carbonation in the beer using that hole in the shive, either by using a, a hard spile, which will keep the, the gas in, or a soft spile, which will help some of it to escape. And that also means you can serve the beer under um, a natural atmospheric pressure. So two impacts on the kind of flavour of the beer on this is the fact that, uh, first of all, you can get a lower level of carbonation into the beer by doing that because, you know, this is another myth. I think most people assume that cask beer is like naturally lower carbonated. Well, it, it is by the time it's served, but actually quite a lot of it when it arrives in the pub is actually really, really highly carbonated. If you talk to cellar keepers who deal regularly with certain brewers like Timothy Taylor, for example, they're notorious for the casks kind of arriving in the pub in a very, very lively condition. It's usually like the, you know, the new member of staff they're training up, they send down without warning them to go and open up the cask you know you've got a very very lively product but you can vent some of that co2 and then when you've got it absolutely perfect you know trap it back in and then when you actually come to serve the beer you can loosen that spile again so that the beer is drawn out under natural atmospheric pressure so we don't need to add extra carbon dioxide to it or any kind of extra gas to push the beer out of its cask. You can literally either like serve it by gravity straight from the cask or pump it with a simple manual pump, as you know, most people associate with cask dispense with the hand pull or beer engine. So uh, you've got this lower carbonation and that also means you can serve it at a slightly warmer temperature. 
And that's, again, you know, this is back to the laws of physics. It's about the fact that gases dissolve more readily into liquids when they're cooler at cooler temperatures. So if you get a very heavily carbonated product, like a keg beer, you have to serve it quite cool because otherwise it's very difficult to serve. All the carbon dioxide will be bursting to get out and you'll get that, you know, what, what, we, what we call fobbing, you know, when you see some places struggling to serve a very highly carbonated beer and all that's coming out of the tap is a load of foam. You chill it down in order to get the CO2 to dissolve as much as possible into the beer and then you'll get a smooth pour. But with cask, it doesn't need to be chilled down quite so much. So casks should be served at cellar temperature. And this is where we start to get into sort of some forms of, you know, a bit of debate about this now. I think probably the consensus today is that cellar temperature is 10 to 12 degrees. Some people now are going a little bit cooler. In the past, it tended to be a little bit warmer. So if you read trade manuals from the 50s, for example, they all go up to like 14.5 degrees, for example, which from a personal point of view, I think is probably too warm. So it should be cool, but, you know, not as cold as a, as a keg beer, which is typically six to eight degrees and in some cases a little bit lower. So what does that mean in terms of the, the subjective experience of enjoying it? It means we get more flavour out of it because it's slightly warmer, which means that our senses of taste and, and smell work more efficiently. We extract more flavour. Also, because it's slightly warmer, more aroma escapes from it as well. And it's also going to affect the mouthfeel because of the lower carbonation too. So it's going to feel, you know, not so kind of prickly and carbonated in the mouth. It's going to feel a lot smoother. Now, I absolutely agree with you about the fact that if you do that well, you get a fantastic result. But I think to some extent, it depends on style. And I think what's happened is in this country, because we stuck with cask, we stuck with a system where the beer generally tended to be sold, at, you know, like a little bit on the milder side in terms of temperature and a little bit less carbonated. The styles, you know, evolved to suit that. So if you look at the kind of traditional styles of cask beer, like the bitters and miles and so on, they're quite they're quite subtle low abv beers with quite subtle flavors and cask flatters those very well because it emphasizes the subtlety of those flavors i don't necessarily think it works with all beers i mean i suppose two good comparisons are like you know lager for example if you get like a very very good traditional lager in the czech republic or germany you know they're not cask they're naturally conditioned in some sense, in the sense that if you do it by the, the very, very traditional method, you know, the carbonation is all evolved during the fermentation process and you trap that in the beer. But they are because lager ferments because of the yeast that's used in the fermentation technique ferments at a cooler temperature. It tends to suit lower serving temperatures. It doesn't tend to have such a kind of complex, subtle flavor to it because the way it's fermented and matured, like it raises a lot of the flavor active components that the yeast produces. So it's actually kind of tends to work better if it's a bit cooler and a bit more carbonated. And, and that's the way that, you know, people are, that style has evolved and people are used to it. You know, look at US craft beer when that evolved in the, you know, started to emerge in the 80s and 90s. A lot of the brewers who started it were very, very influenced by European brewing, including like British brewing, and were aware of cask, but they didn't really have the capacity to reproduce it. So they didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the, the equipment. You know, it wasn't going to be an easy thing for them. And there are other problems with cask as well to do with shelf life and things like that. You know, the styles that evolved from US craft brewing very much suited keg dispense, I think, because they, you know, they were using 
West Coast hops, which generally tend to be a lot more kind of intense in flavor, more fruity, more piney than, um, you know, the more traditional European varieties, including the typical kind of hops that were traditionally used in British cast beers. And they tend to be quite stronger as well, because US brothers, when they started off in the 80s and 90s, one of the things they really wanted to do was set themselves clearly apart from the mainstream of US brewing, you know, the last thing. If you were like a, a new U.S. craft brewer in the, the 80s, was the last thing you wanted to brew was an American light lager. You know, you wanted to brew something that was so different from that in terms of like, you know, the flavor profile and so on. And I think the result was you got these very kind of heavily flavored beers and they can sometimes be a bit too much if they're served on cask to me. I've judged cask in the U.S. And when you have like a double dry hopped, hazy, juicy Imperial IPA served from a cask, it can be just a bit too much. You really want a bit more of a sort of a cooler temperature and a bit more of a zing from the carbonation for those beers to really, you know, kind of sing in the way that they ought to. There's actually a section in the book called Is Cask Always Best? And I'm often surprised at how well it can work with certain beers. This actually came up in a conversation about Thornbridge Jaipur. I'm sure that's a beer familiar to a lot of people who follow your podcast. It's one of those beers that's long been available in a variety of formats. So as a cast beer and as a keg beer and as a bottled brewery conditioned beer. I've actually met quite a lot of keen cast drinkers who've said, well, when it comes to Thornbridge Jaipur, I kind of prefer the keg. And I sort of thought, well, I wonder, because, you know, again, it's not, you know, it's not a huge, by today's standards, it's not a kind of huge hoppy beer, but it's still got hoppy punch and a lot of sort of West Coast hops in it. So I was at the brewery with the two brewers there. I said to them, what do you prefer? How do you think Jaipur works best? And they both unhesitatingly said cask. And we did a little comparison, not with, they didn't have the keg on at the tap room at the time, but we had, you know, a bottled version, which was very, very close to the keg. And I came away from that basically agreeing with them so i think cast will work you know i think it will work well for a you know a wider range of beers than perhaps some people think i think there are are certain circumstances where you're better off conditioning in other ways when you've got the right style and when you do cask well and when it's looked after well and when it's fresh it just can achieve things that you can't achieve Certainly not at the moment in in any other way. And I think that's what's so important about it in terms of international beer culture. And we have a responsibility to it here because we're the only country where, you know, even though it's gone down to about 4% of the overall, you know, output of beer in this country, it's still readily available. You'll find it in a lot of places. You know, it's not always so well looked after, but it's enough well looked after that you should be able easily to find it if you're, you're being sent in the right direction. Whereas everywhere else if it's done at all then it's on a very very small scale and very much a kind of specialist operation it's funny uh looking back at i think i was very lucky to grow up in uh west london near the river and on the north bank of the river i had a load of fuller's pubs serving london pride uh esb all stuff that that tasted great i can now tell looking back tasted great on cask and then on the other side of the river a lot more young's pubs um selling young's and young special and and this is while they were still brewing in wandsworth looking back mid to late 90s i felt like i was drinking some good cask beer i didn't really realize at the time but now even when you describe now i can think about the temperature at which it was served the kind of amount of of conditioning in it and and just the subtlety of flavor yeah i mean and, and you mentioned it there that it's 
it's worryingly low, 4%. And I think it's important, you know, I know there's a lot of people listen here that are kind of new to the beer scene because it's exploding and I get all that. I think I would really just ask people to go and track down, like go and make an effort to find a pub that serves good cask beer. And that's part of the reason why I asked you to define it. And I think it's important to, to point this out because I know not everyone knows it. If you go into a pub, if you see those big, almost look like they're made of ivory hand pull, that is cask beer. Like in the Queen Vic on EastEnders, pulling it back. You won't get that on anything other than cask beer. So go and have a look at those hand pulls and try some. Have we still got kind of total UK coverage in terms of places where, you know, I remember talking to Emma Inch in the last episode and she was saying that Harvey's is one of her all-time favourites, but, you know, you can only get it within an 80-mile radius of the brewery. Even though it's only 4%, have we still got kind of UK-wide coverage just about where you can go and find relatively locally a good locally made cask beer? I think we certainly have in in England and in, I mean, in Wales probably more, you know, I'm, I'm not sure in more rural Wales whether that's the case. Certainly in Cardiff you won't have any problems. In Scotland it's a lot more patchy. Scotland has, you know, a sort of, again, is something I deal with in the book, has a kind of distinct, you know, beer history. The real kind of epicentre of cask in Scotland is Edinburgh. And you'll be spoiled for choice with good cask beer in Edinburgh. Around the whole central belt and so on, you'll find it. But as you spread out further than that, it becomes sparser. And I think there are obvious reasons for that in terms of, like, you know, the difficulty of the remoteness of the challenge of the country and so on. And the fact that, you know, there are relatively low populations and... I guess that brings us back to that other kind of issue with cask beer, that it depends for its quality on a quick turnover, because this is the hazard of, you know, having a beer that's open to the air. Every time you dispense it, you're adding some air in. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're pulling, unless you're using a cask breather or an aspirator, which is, you know, sort of another discussion. But uh, in the traditional way that you dispense it, it's completely open to the air. So rather than filling the space with sterile CO2 or nitrogen, as you will with the cake beer, you're just pulling in air. So air is going to cause stale flavours just by natural chemical reactions that take place. So kind of papery, musty, damp cardboard type flavours. But it's also going to bring in various bugs. So acetobacter that can sour the beer in an unpleasant way and produce kind of acetic acid, vinegary flavours and possibly wild yeasts, you know, that can produce unwanted fermentations and so on. So if you ask most brewers, once you've started to actually draw beer from a cask and the cask has started to empty, how long should you keep it on sale? The standard answer is three days. Most casks, 72 pints, but sediment and things like that, you'll get about 68 pints out of a, of, of a typical firkin. All right, Des, we're, we're unfortunately running out of time. We could talk for, for hours about this. Uh, I had a funny little question that I wanted to ask you. So, okay, the world's about to end. We've got half an hour before we all go into oblivion. But I can magically bring to you a pint of perfectly cellared, perfectly served cask ale to enjoy as your final pint of your life. What are you going for? Sarah Hughes Dark Ruby, which is a 6% ABV, old school, strong, dark mild from a little traditional brew pub called the Beacon Hotel in a place called Sedgley near Wolverhampton in the Black Country in the West Midlands. That is 
absolutely one of my you know favorite go-to cast beers it's an astonishing beer it has so much kind of richness and complexity and it's also just one of those things where you know i do a lot of beer judging i do a lot of uh you know kind of writing about beer flavor and kind of breaking beer flavor down and you know quite an analytical way but there are beers where just everything comes together in a way that's like imponderable you know and, and and sarah hughes is just one of those for me and i know it is for a lot of other people it's extremely hard to get unless you make the little pilgrimage so if you could with the world about to end if you could work your magic i'd very much appreciate it without me needing to to, to travel to the west midlands to get it so yeah <laughs> That's brilliant. And then at the at the other end of the scale, you know, people who maybe haven't tried cask before, but but really should. And, you know, we've got to support it to get it back up above that 4%. What's a good starting point? What are kind of two or three very widely available cask beers that people can spot in a pub and go, oh, I'll try a pint of that? I think if you wanted to go for sort of absolute classics, you know, that are very, very, very good beers and very much in that kind of classic style, I would say, you know, we mentioned them earlier in connection with Emma Harvey's, you know, Harvey's Sussex Best is just uh, an amazing beer. And Timmy Taylor's Landlord, you know, they, they are, you know, both absolute kind of pillar classics. But on the other hand, those sort of, you know, textbook classics aren't always the best thing to recommend to newcomers. And I know this from my own experience in kind of getting to, to know whiskies. You know, sometimes it's the more left field stuff. So I certainly think it's worth trying milds because they're very different from, you know, the style is quite different from the types of styles most people are used to these days. And if you find yourself kind of wearying of, you know, hazy, juicy, massively aroma hot pale ales, then, you know, a mild is so different. It may just knock your taste buds into a completely different ballpark and you'll find there's whole new areas of taste that open up for you. And I also think that if you do want to stick to something that's perhaps a little bit more contemporary, there are some very, very good modern style sessionable beers in cask and you know the early ones that really kind of broke u.s hops in this country are beers like well actually dark star hophead which is now made by fullers in chiswick because sadly we've lost the dark star brewery i saw he closed it down but you know still a, a, a perfectly good beer uh still very balanced and some of the other classics things like oakum citra and beers like that again i think they you know they're beers that use american hops in a recognizable way but they kind of slot them into that balance of a cask beer and thornbridge Jaipur, as we mentioned earlier. So there are beers around like that. But I'd encourage people to try like a range of, you know, different styles and perhaps go for styles that they they might not have tried before because, you know, that's often what, it, you know, I quite often, you know, deal with people doing tours and tastings who say, I don't like beer. Um, and sometimes I find it's the the most kind of, you know, way out beers that, that, that crack that. And that is where the interview ended. Unfortunately, we kind of got cut off before I managed to say my big thank you and goodbye to Des. So I'll say that now. Des, thank you. That was a brilliant insight into the wonderful world of cask beer. And I certainly learned so much. And I'll definitely be checking out that book to dive into the history. And also just all those little offshoots where perhaps you'd thought something about cask beer that is not really the case those myths that he was talking about and also just a, a, a better appreciation of its its place its key place within the history of the beer culture of this country and and indeed the world and also how much it is under threat and we have to go out there and support it and the absolute simplest way to go and do that is simply to go and find cask beer 
and buy it and try it and taste it and like it and spread the word. This is something well, well worth preserving. And I am very keen to brew my own cask beer. It's actually not that easy to track down the equipment that you need to do it. Literally, the casks are quite hard to come across. So I'm working on that at the moment. Uh, Now, you may have heard me mention at the beginning of the episode that the book, Des's book, Cask Beer, The Real Story of Britain's Unique Beer Culture, that is out today, August the 1st. So do go and check it out, get it ordered and get reading it. And that is published by Camera. And Camera, of course, holding their big flagship event starting today, the Great British Beer Festival. And it's on in London for the next few days. I was really, really hoping to attend, but unfortunately, due to life stuff, having to earn money and having to be present and look after family and school holidays, all those things have combined and it's just not practical for me to get down from Cardiff to go to the trade day. I had all my accreditation sorted, which I'm very grateful for, but unfortunately, I just cannot make it. So I will save that pleasure for next year and anyone that is going to GBBF have a fantastic time. The beer list looks incredible and I know that there will be some fantastic beers on offer. So enjoy it. Go and drink some wonderful beer. Not much to update you on in this bit at the end other than, as always, I will be looking out for great stories, great people, all loosely linked or very closely linked to beer. And as soon as I find good ones, I will bring them to you on this podcast. So please keep listening. I really appreciate your support. And please keep spreading the word of Nantvar Brews. But as I always say, until the next time we make an episode, be kind to each other, have a lovely life, and drink some good beer, and make it cask this time. Why not? See you next time.